The title of my sermon this morning is We Groan But God. Four words, We Groan But God. Uh, today's message is a timely message. If you, if you haven't heard recent uh, news that has taken place in the life of the church this week, you will in just a moment. So I offer today's message um, because of the week that just took place. So it's timely in that regard. By way of introduction, this message is topical. It's timely and topical. When I say that it is topical, it is one of those messages where we're going to be moving around in different sections of the scripture. So you need to have your Bibles ready and be able to move around. I won't be camping in just one section, moving through verse by verse, what we call exposition. Expository preaching is kind of our default here at the church. It's our go-to. We move through the scripture systematically that way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and you get the flow of the text. It's easy to get the original meaning that the author intended when, you're, when you start at the beginning and you just move through. When you get an email from someone, there's a whole, there's a whole context to it. Maybe a previous conversation, a relationship, or whatever, and, and when you see someone's name pop up in your email before you click on it, you might even know what it's about, what it pertains to, and, and you open it up and you have all this context. So too with the Bible, when we open it up, there's context, there's names, there's things going on behind the scenes, and they're so important to understand, and so expository preaching is just a, a, a really helpful way of studying the Word because you're just, you're reading the emails in order, and you're not stepping into it late. You're not walking into the middle of the movie going, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on here. That said, it is important that we also topically preach because there are topics inside of the Bible that are important for us to understand. Last Sunday, we studied the topic of prayer, and I took you to different sections of the Bible that you know, talk about prayer so that you get a broad sweep of the sections of the Scripture, what they say about prayer. If we want to talk about angels or demons or salvation, right? you want to move through the whole Bible and see what the whole Bible has to say about that. That's topical or thematic uh, or doctrinal ways of preaching where you're looking at a specific topic. Now, from today's uh, title, you might guess that my topic has something to do with groaning, something to do with suffering. And if you are thinking that, you are absolutely correct. It has been uh, a week of groaning, and it seemed fitting that we would come to the text of Scripture and look at the theme of groaning, a theme of suffering, a theme of death, a, a theme of disease and dysfunction. If you were here for church on time this Sunday, we began our service with a public reading of Scripture in the book of Romans. We, we stood together and we heard this text that I'll put in front of you right now, Romans 8, that I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You, you see there in verse 19, the anxious longing of creation. You, you, you see in verse 22 there, the whole creation is groaning and suffering why is the creation groaning and suffering? You see in Romans 8, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility. You see in verse 21 of Romans 8, the creation itself is under slavery to this corruption and it's longing for this freedom and for this deliverance that is to come. We began the service intentionally with this theme so as to set uh, the, the tempo for today's worship service because we are going to be reflecting upon a creation that is, in the words of Scripture, groaning. A creation that is, in the words of Scripture, eagerly awaiting to be delivered from this groaning. If you've ever been in pain, no doubt, uh, I'd say the vast majority of us in this room, everyone has, 
You know what it is to groan. You know what it is to be hit so hard by something that, that indeed that's all you can do. Words can't quite capture it. You just have to make a sound. You just have to groan. Now, with Romans 8 in front of us, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to another section of the Pauline corpus, another section of Paul's writings. If you would, please turn to 2 Corinthians and find your way to the 5th chapter. 2 Corinthians, find your way to the 5th chapter. We'll be in chapter 4 and chapter 5, actually. And we'll flip around, we'll look at 1 Corinthians as well, and we'll explore the theme of groaning and suffering. The last few weeks have been hard weeks for us as a, as a congregation. Uh, just last Saturday, we had a funeral for uh, Emil Belton's father, who passed away on the Sunday morning prior. We've been thinking about death as a congregation. We have had, and what ha- is inspiring today's message, we have had a few weeks of, of watching one of our uh, most faithful churchmen in the congregation who's been in the hospital for weeks now, uh, Um, Clarence Larson, we know him as Clanky. He passed away on Friday. I'll put a picture of him up in case you're new here and you don't readily see his face when you hear his name. Clarence, a.k.a. Clanky, passed away on Friday. He is survived by four kids, 17 grandkids, and six great-grandkids. He was a a faithful presence in our church since the 1960s. He's been a part of this church since the 1960s. He's been a part of this church longer than I've been alive. Every Sunday, faithful. It's crazy to think this is his, you know, first Sunday in heaven. Just so used to seeing him on Sundays. And the last few weeks of him being in the hospital has been hard because his presence around here just means everything to us. In fact, I've, I, found a, I found a picture. It's a little gritty right there, but there you can see him. He's in the sound booth. That was kind of his spot for a long time. He'd be back there in the sound booth. The CDs uh, in, the, in the entryway there to, by the women's restroom, he, you know, his hands touched all of those. That was his baby. He was on the, the, the counting team here for years, handling offerings and whatnot. As a part of our congregation, by the way, so you know, like our, our staff, our pastors here, we don't touch anything regarding finances. We rely on the church to do that. And Clanky was one of the faithful members on our, on our counting team uh, who would make sure that all the offerings were accounted for and they were deposited in the bank. He was a, a handyman around here. There's all sorts of things that I can look around the room and uh, see, see that his hand touched over the years just a faithful, faithful man. One of the things that I loved especially about Clanky and his family on any given Sunday was to to see him and to see some of his kids and see some of his grandkids and even to see some of his great-grandkids. To have in a church a man and his kids and his grandkids and his great-grandkids I just love seeing that. I, I, I long for our church to have more of that, to see those generations all worshiping the Lord, all gathering together. Before COVID, when we didn't have these, uh, these, nasty little, uh, these nasty communion cups that we have, you know, and everyone would walk forward. And I would, love, I would love just being seated here after the sermon and seeing Clanky come forward, see one of his kids or his, his son-in-law, Mike Dolan, come forward and see their kids and 
You even see Spencer holding a baby, and you just, you just see the generations coming to the table of the Lord in one church. Like he was born in 1932. He was born into a cold world. Um, 1929 through 1933, more than 13 million people were unemployed after the Wall Street stock market crash that triggered the Great Depression. He was born right into the Great Depression. He lived through World War II. He lived through the Cold War. Uh, he lived through 1941, the Japanese warplanes, Pearl Harbor. He lived through 1945, the two atomic bombs, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. He lived through North Korea and the Chinese troops in the Korean War. He lived through the Vietnam War. He served in the military himself. He saw conflict in the world that he was born in. He saw the conflict at home in the nation that he was born in, the United States of America. Over the course of Clanky's lifetime, he would see the civil rights movement advance. He would live through 1954, Brown versus Board of Education. He, he would live through seeing the face of Emmett Till in the news after he was murdered in 1955. He would live through JFK's assassination. He lived through the Watts riots. He lived through the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. The presidential candidate, Robert F. Kennedy, who also was assassinated, he lived through a lot of history, a lot of hard history. War in the nations, unrest at home, uh, racism at home. One of the things I love about Clanky's life as well is just seeing, seeing this, this old white man born in the 30s with black grandchildren. And you say, that is so beautiful to see in the course of his life the rumblings of the nation being fleshed out in his own life, in his own family. He was a man who loved. He was a man who lived. And the loss of him is, uh, is it's a hard one. It's, it, it hits really, really hard, I must admit. And so it seemed fitting, as a congregation, uh, we always pause when something's going on in our, in our church. We always pause if something kind of crazy is going on in the world. If I'm expositing through, you know, the Bible, if we're moving through Leviticus or something, and something tragic happens, I don't just, well, we left off in chapter 6, chapter 7. No, we, we stop, we pause, we process, and it, it, it is fitting for us to stop and pause and process, to be challenged by Clanky's life, to groan together, to mourn together, but above all, to be moved by Scripture this morning. Now, I, I, I ask for you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, so if you haven't done that, would you get over to 2 Corinthians? The loss of a loved one has a way of rendering even the most verbose among us helplessly speeches. Thankfully, humanity hasn't been left in silent darkness. We have been given Scripture as a shining and steady word from God that speaks to our painful speechlessness with soothing confidence and unadulterated truth. In the midst of my own loss for words, the aching silence, uh, has been broken by the words of God in Paul's writings. As we've already looked at Romans and we've thought about the groanings of creation, and now we have Corinthians in front of us, we will read more about groaning. We will read more about suffering, and we will process the passing of our beloved Clanky. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, I want to take you there. I want to highlight some verses in this chapter as a means to honor dear Clanky as a means to honor the scripture that he clung to, as a means to do what we always do when we gather in worship. We gather around the word of God. You don't come to church on a Sunday to hear a mortal speak, give you a little TED talk and some self-help or whatever. You come to hear the word of God. And that's what we're going to do. So 
As you turn to this passage, just by way of context, everything has context. 2 Corinthians is a part of a chain of emails or correspondences. We have two of them, 1 and 2 Corinthians, written by the Apostle Paul to a local church in the ancient city of Corinth, hence it bears the name Corinthians. Uh, there are other letters that he references in these two letters, and so we know that this was an ongoing, real life, real people, real faith kind of relationship. Let me give you a picture of ancient Corinth so you can imagine the scene. So Paul is writing to Corinth. He is writing not abstractly to the city, of course. He's writing to a congregation there. He's writing to people in that congregation. In fact, I, I asked you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but really quick, since 1 Corinthians butts right up, up against 2 Corinthians, turn, turn just to the closing chapter of 1 Corinthians. When you get to the end of 1 Corinthians, you see Paul's heart for the people. It's a hard letter. He has some stern words to bring to them. Uh, he he, he drops some truth bombs on them. He, he flies in and goes gangster on, on his Facebook comments on them. He does some stuff. But you see his love penetrating the whole thing. And when you get to the end of 1 Corinthians, this will help give us some context as we're stepping into 2 Corinthians. Look, look at how it begins, chapter 16. Concerning the collection of the saints that I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you... On the first day of every week, each one is to put aside and save as he prospers uh, so that the collections will be made, blah, 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 the gift to Jerusalem, it's fitting for me. He's dealing with church matters. As we discussed, you know, with our beloved Kleinke. This was Kleinke's ministry. He's dealt with collections in the church and what have you. He writes about coming down to Macedonia. He, he starts talking about how he longs to see these people. Look at verse 10. He mentions Timothy. He mentions the Lord's work. Look at verse 12, he mentions Apollos, our brother. Look at verse 15, he mentions Stephanus. Verse 17, again, he mentions Stephanus and Fortuninus and Achaicus. Verse 19, he mentions Aquila and Prisca. He's talking about real people in real life who are, who are living out a real faith in, in this town, a hard town. It has a, a lot of parallels with Los Angeles. So now as you turn from chapter 16 over to 2 Corinthians, if you... If you look at the opening chapter, again, you see his heart for the people. You see his heart for the ministry there, his heart for the Lord. He talks about, in verse 5 of chapter 1, sufferings. In verse 6, he talks about the afflicted. In, 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 in verse 6, he talks about sufferings and, and endurance. This all is a, a fitting text in for us to be in after we have lost our beloved Clanky this week, a pillar in the church. One who cared about this place. One who cared about the word of God in this place. So with all of that said, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. I'll offer you some points that you have on your outline. And the first point that I have is that, that the, these texts that I'm showing you today will explain our suffering. Draw your eyes at verse 16 of chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore we do not lose heart... But though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. The Apostle Paul is concerned with his readers losing heart. Notice here he speaks about the outer man decaying, which is a reference to the human body that ages and deteriorates. We've all experienced bodily aches, fatigue, and injury. Many of us have experienced surgery. Uh, sometimes surgery that is helpful and uh, sometimes not quite as obliging as we might have hoped for. Um, I've, I've always thought about doing the hair plugs, but, you know, it probably would go over bad. We've made those mistakes. I'm not going to do it. 
The fact is, our, our bodies are decaying. The word that is used here in the original Greek text, diaphthoreo, is a word that means perishing. We are perishing. That is a sobering thing. Our bodies are in the process of death. And while the young do not realize it, and the old often deny it, there is no way around the reality of this in verse 16. We are, we are perishing. Some of you have gone through, because you're old enough, that experience in life where you're listening to the radio, and they say, uh, you know, the oldies hour or whatever, and you're like, about to change the channel, and then you go, wait a second, that's my music. <laughs> when, did, when did I join the oldies genre? We're in the process of getting older. We're in the process not just of aging, but of perishing. Disease comes. It riddles our bodies. It riddles the outer man. The outer man is decaying. I think of a, a few weeks ago here in our church, our beloved brother Anthony Sims uh, got up in front of us, and we were led in a time of prayer for his good friend Eric, who was dying of, of bile duct cancer. We prayed and we prayed. He was in a wheelchair in the front here with his wife Paula, and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And Eric is still suffering. His body is still withering away. And we can, we can look at our, our dear brother Eric in Christ and, and we can grieve and we say, he's, he's perishing, his body's withering away. And we forget that our bodies are withering away as well. We are all in a state of dying. We are all in a state of perishing. The outer man, the body is perishing. Everything is getting old. Now think about that. What is the oldest thing that you own? What's the oldest thing that you own? Is the oldest thing that you own older than you? Perhaps maybe you have a family heirloom or some, uh, something, you know, like some time worm that you've collected that's older than you, a piece of pottery, a fossil, an artifact, or something like that. And if you own something like this, I mean, how do you handle it? Very carefully, don't you? Very carefully, because it's, it's very likely very fragile because it is subject to decay. So we go to museums and we see behind glass cases and what have you, these old things, and, and we marvel at them, pieces of the past that wither as time passes. Nothing escapes the withering and the decay. I suppose it is job security for archeologists and doctors. More candidly speaking, it's job security for the undertakers, the morticians and the cemetery workers. It's dismal, it's overwhelming when we consider the entire cosmos itself is in decay. It's not just the outer man of mortal bodies, of men and animals and plants. It's the whole creation. According to the laws of thermodynamics, the universe is running out of usable energy, which means there is a universal death that awaits everything in the cosmos. This is very humbling. Death will claim all things, and more personally, it will come for all of us. And why is that? Well, scientifically speaking, death is a cessation of chemical and biological functions that sustain life. Think about this, however. This description of biological cessation answers nothing. Why, why does death come? Well, there's a cessation of biological and chemical functions. But, but that just merely explains what happens in death. It doesn't explain why there is death. Why do we die? Why is the universe running out of usable energy and going to face cosmic death? The, the, the laws of science only explain how, they don't explain why. And as we mourn the loss of our beloved Clarence, we are not asking how he died. We know that his organs were shutting down. We, we, we understand all the, 
the cessation of the biological functions going on within his body, we understand how it happened, but why did it happen? Furthermore, as we face our own mortality, we often wonder why. Thankfully, the Bible explains it. And while its answer may not be what we are looking for, or even what we wanted, the Bible does give us the truth of why death. And further, further, it points us to the giver of life and to the glory of the giver of life. So why death? Romans chapter 6, verse 23, write it down. The wages of sin is death. Committed to memory, Romans 6, 23. The wages of sin is death. This is your paycheck. This is your wages. A, wa a wage is what you have coming to you. When you worked and you earned something, you receive a wage. It's what's fair. It's what you have coming to you. The wages of sin is death. It's what's fair. Why is that fair? Because we've rebelled against the giver of life, and so death comes. This means we die because we've sinned. I love science. I, I love uh, you know, what's testable and observable and repeatable. And this phenomenon is actually scientifically verifiable. 10 out of 10 people die. 10 out of 10 people sin. It's that apparent. It's that obvious. And so, so, so we, we die because we sin. We are sinners. And as a result, we decay and we die. And we must understand that, that sin isn't this ethereal or abstract sort of thing that's floating around in the cosmos. Sin isn't so, something that's out there, nor is it something that is happy to sort of just stay put in some abstract moral realm. Sin permeates the cosmos and, and human experience itself. It shows itself in biology. Living things are dying things because living things, specifically humans, are sinning things. And the non-living inanimate objects likewise around us, they decay because of the effects of our sin on everything that we touch. It's like the Midas touch, but it's a touch of death. If you live in a bubble of naivete and you bury yourself in oblivion, you might try to convince yourself otherwise, but the bubble is burst, however, by simple observation. Just turn on the news and you see the decay, you witness the death, you see the dysfunction. On the news, you see sin. You hear stories of the escapades of sin. You see the drama, the drunkenness, the, the racism, the thievery, the sexual perversion, the oppression, the greed, the gluttony, the murder, and on and on and on. It's depressing. And when it strikes in our homes on those we love, it is unbearably debilitating. Here we are, with the pain of death before us and our beloved no longer before us, snatched from our presence this Friday by the uninvited party crasher called death. But this unwanted guest, death, serves to remind us all of the theology before us concerning our sin. And specifically, in the passing of Clanky, we are reminded that no one is free from sin. It exposes our sin. It explains our suffering, and it exposes our sin. If anyone was not a sinner, it was Clanky. If anyone was an actual saint in the conventional sense, it, it was Clanky. Clanky had no enemies. Not, like, I, I mean, like, I, I know a lot of people, and most of the people I know have people who don't like them. No one didn't like Clanky. He, he was that guy. Just everywhere, like, everyone loved him. Everyone, you know, he, he, he kept a Facebook profile. Stuff never blew up on his page. Everyone liked Clanky. He was the real that way. Loved his family, loved his church, lo loved, loved, loved serving others, loved volunteering. 17 grandkids, six great grandkids from four kids. Loved his family, loved his Lord. 
like he loved Christ and he wanted those around him to know the Savior deeply in the inner man. As his outer man was dying, in his inner man, you see the grace of God overflowing in his life. And so you see, I have the highest regard for Clanky, as I'm sure most of you do, especially those of you who knew him. If anyone was not a sinner, if anyone was a saint, if anyone could be exempt from that 10 out of 10 statistics that I gave a moment ago, we'd say, well, it, it was Clanky. But if you talk to Clanky, he'd say, oh, no, I'm not exempt. I'm a bona fide sinner. We all are. We all are. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. None are righteous, none are good. In Mark chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said, no one is good except God alone. And so then, as good as Clanky was, we understand that there's a real sense in which he was not good. He was not righteous. He was a sinner. Granted, if there was a contest on which, uh, uh, you know, we could see who would sin the least, uh, Clanky might beat us all. Speaking of contests, if you've uh, been on Facebook at all, you've seen his kids post. One of the highlights of Clanky's life was that he, he went on TV a handful of times on game shows, and he, like, the dude just rocked. They, they had to blacklist him because he, he would just win all the game shows. And uh, his kids have been posting on Facebook, and without missing a beat, you know, he'd clown the host. The host would say something, you know, like, Clanky, where'd you get that nickname? And he just would come back. Like, the guy was just so sharp. He was so in the pocket. If there was a contest, you know, he's the one who would win it. If there was a contest on who could sin the least, he would be the one who would beat us all. However, that would be a twisted view of sin and justice. You see, sin is not measured against Clanky. Sin is not measured against another good person. You might Oprah or Bono or Mr. Rogers or whoever. Sin isn't measured against other persons. Sin is measured against the perfect standard of God's law. Please understand this. Follow this. It's important for you to understand the nature of law and how law works. This is just basic jurisprudence here. The law presumes obedience. Let me say it again. Law presumes obedience. The law does not reward you for obedience. The law presumes obedience. This is why get-out-of-jail-free cards are only in monopoly, not in reality. This is why the police don't pull you over and reward you for driving the speed limit. I've been following you for quite some time down Manchester, young man, and I'd just like to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card because you've been following the speed limit. No, you, you don't get rewarded for doing the law. It presumes that you follow it. We don't get pulled over. We don't get pulled over when we're following the law. We get pulled over when we've broken the law. Consider a crime more significant than speeding. Think about murder. A man who has murdered cannot stand before the judge and appeal to all the times that he did not murder in order to balance the scales. Such a defense would be ludicrous. Imagine saying, you know, Your Honor, I killed that guy. I, I, I killed that guy. He kind of had it coming. But think about all the people I haven't killed. The law doesn't work that way. I see I'm far more good, Your Honor, when you think of all the, the hundreds of thousands of people that I haven't killed. Hopefully this is intuitive to you, and hopefully it's intuitively absurd. The legal reason why it is absurd, again, is because the law presumes obedience. And with this fundamental understanding of the law in mind, consider in your own life, and consider the law of God against your own life. Keep in mind, I'm not talking about human laws and human courts, but the divine law of God that is universal, never partial, nor subject to corruption. We watch the news, there's cases going on in the courts right now, and people have strong feelings about what they think happened, and... Sometimes you see uh, instances where you might feel like justice isn't served, not in the courtroom of God. The law of God is, is incorruptible. It is always just. 
Now, this is good news that, that, that God is always just, but it is also bad news for those of us who have broken his law. It means we cannot sneak past God's justice. We can't, we can't wait for a time when God is not looking because he is always looking. And please don't mistake this as mere conjecture or faith. Science deals with that which is observable, and we can observe the transcultural anthropological phenomenon all around the world that humans experience sin and guilt. Every culture, every religion, every corner of the earth, you will find humans who experience guilt and sin. Every culture in the world knows that certain things are wrong, and every person in the world has done certain things that are wrong. That's what we call sin, and sin produces in us guilt at least in its early stages before one maybe sears their conscience by continually doing the same wicked thing over and over. But everyone's experienced this. So then let me appeal to your conscience. You know you've sinned. You know you've broken God's law. And as I've explained, you cannot appeal to being good or obeying the law of God in other areas of your life for the times that you have broken it. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 64, verse 6, says our righteousness is like filthy rags before God. If you've broken his law, you are guilty and you deserve punishment. So decay and death are proof positive of the judgment that weighs against us. Why death? Because we've rebelled against the giver of life, and so life is being taken back. Death is merely a prison of sorts. It's actually not the actual punishment for our sins. The actual punishment comes after death. And this is where we get into the H-E double hockey stick that people think is politically incorrect, but I wouldn't, I'd be a derelict if I didn't tell you about it. The reality of hell is something that only the privileged and the spoiled would question. Those who have tasted true injustice and oppression in this life know that hell is not the antithesis of a loving God. Rather, it is the love of a father who brings recompense to those who have hurt his children. It is the justice of an officer of peace. It is the reality of a perfectly holy being whose presence is incompatible with sin. Like a consuming fire that takes over a dry desert, the nature of sheer holiness consumes sin. It is not abstract, it's real, it's personal. And at the personal level, all of that is devastating as we come to grips with our sin and this holy God who always upholds his law and justice. If the wages of sin is death and we've all sinned, that's bad news because we have death and a judgment after death that we can't escape merely because we died. That's bad news. It is not surprising news because I'm no stranger to guilt and regret and imperfection and hurting others, and living in denial, and trying to justify myself, and feeling broken, and, and longing to do better. I get it. We all get it. And the Bible warns us of the human tendency. In Romans 1.18, it puts it this way, to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. I know that Clanky would have me tell you these things, and you know that I tell you these things every Sunday, because that's my job. And it's your job to hold me accountable, to proclaim the good news and the bad news each and every week. That's, that's how we roll. So we want to make it clear this Sunday, above all Sundays, as we are processing and reminding ourselves of what the scriptures teach with regard to the passing of life and death, I beg you, I beg you to hear these words. I implore you to see that resistance to this truth is a cosmic battle. And this act of pleading that I'm making to you now is a part of that battle to rescue you from the wages of sin and death. With 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in front of us, let me draw your attention back at that chapter let me draw your attention at the fourth verse of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It warns us this. The God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Hear this clearly. The wages of sin 
is death. Hear this clearly. The wages of sin has been paid. The death that awaits us has been handled. Hear me, there are forces that don't want you to hear that. The holy and just God has lovingly provided a way for justice to be satisfied for your sin and for grace to cover your heads. You see, the God of heaven, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of Paul, the God of Clanky, eternally exists as one true and loving God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. As Christians, we speak of the doctrine of the Trinity, this one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. But more than doctrine, this is the reality of God in which His perfect love, mercy, grace, and redemption are known. This redemption is good news. Here's the bad news. We're going to die. Here's the good news. There's one who has died for us. Here's the bad news. We've all sinned, so we deserve to be punished for that. Here's the good news. There's one that was punished in our place. And the one who was punished in our place wasn't a third party. He wasn't a third party. He wasn't a bystander. The one who was punished in our place is God himself. There's one God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. The Son came, became a man. It's him. It's not a third party. This is God. Further, this is not merely God, but also man. He took humanity upon himself so that as a man, he could die in our place. And as God, he has the prerogative to forgive. A third party can't step in between two parties feuding and say, it's cool, I forgive you. Get out of here. This isn't your argument. This is the first party that stepped in. The one who was rebelled against God, who took on the second party by becoming a man and dying in the place of man. That is good news. The eternal son became a man. Ecce homo, behold the man. There's this famous painting here by Antonio Cicere from the 1800s. He was an Italian painter. Hence, you get an Italian Jesus when you got an Italian painter. But famous painting, Ecce homo, behold the man. And it's that scene as Christ stood innocent before the crowds and the Roman authorities even acknowledged he hasn't done anything. And the crowds chanted for, for his death. And you see, that's what he came for. That was, the, that was the will of God, that he would provide the perfect sacrifice for us. This incarnation of the Son so powerfully reveals to us the intense love of God in his holy nature. As I've shared, the law demands justice, so God in his love took the just punishment of our sins upon himself and the Son. And since the penalty is death, and since God cannot die, the Son became a man in order that he might die as a man in the place of mankind as man himself. And at the same time, the Son was no mere man, for this man from Nazareth is God the Son. And so his death is not only a substitute for mankind, but it is the forgiveness of the triune God of heaven. He suffered. He groaned. We read in Romans, the creation groans. He groaned with the creation. He was no stranger to pain. In the last uh, few weeks, as clanky has been in the hospital, I was able to get down there and visit him, sit with him. And he was going through waves of pain. And he'd, he'd be sitting there. He was, he was totally there. He's totally there to talk and laugh. And, and then he's just, his body would just, whoa, just get hit by something. Something in his sciatica was firing, and it shoot just pain down his legs. And he'd grab, grab his withering legs, and he'd just grit his teeth and hold on. And, and he'd groan. He'd mourn. And it's a helpless place to be in. Uh, as, as a pastor, when you're there to provide comfort, or for his, his daughter is by his bedside, some of you from the church visited him, and you experienced the same thing, to be 
next to someone you love who's in pain, and there's nothing you can do. The nurses can't even do anything. We don't have, we don't have anything to, to, to deal with that. At, at, at one point in this journey, they, they had to actually put him out of it. Make him unconscious. He was unconscious. The pain is just too much. And you see him groaning. You see him groaning. You see him in that. And then you hear echoing from the first century the groanings of God in the flesh, suffering for us, suffering deeply for us. Every groan that Clanky offered from his hospital bed, every groan is matched by the Son of God in the flesh. The death of Christ, of course, was followed by resurrection. After enduring a grueling and groaning and moaning bloody death on the cross for sinners, the dead corpse of Jesus was placed in a tomb only to be risen three days later as imperishable. He conquered the grave. Jesus paid for sin. He not only paid for sin, but he broke the power of sin. His death handled sin, and by the grace of God, he has extended to all sinners to have their sins covered in this payment. The check that he wrote will not bounce. Some of you are too young to know what checks are, so the Venmo, the Zelly, or whatever went through and it got in there. You'll learn what a check is one day when you're standing at Ralph's and, uh, and the old person's there writing one out, and you're like, what are they doing? And that's going to be me. I'm gonna, I haven't had a checkbook in a long time, but I'm, I'm fit to get one, and I'm going to be that guy at Ralph's, just slowing it down, just looking back. Hang on, let me find my Ralph's card, too. You know, uh, Well, just give me your phone number, sir. No, it's in my pocket somewhere. Just going to slow the line down. The deposit that was made in the cross and in the resurrection is for you. The application of this gracious gift is yours for the taking if you would cry out to God and ask for his forgiveness and turn from your sin. Clanky, Clanky did that in his life. He served faithfully as Lord for decades, and God was so gracious to him, and God will be gracious to you. And we will have a reunion with Clanky. We will have a reunion as a church. He will have a reunion with his family for those who are in Christ. It is forthcoming. It is a gathering of the family of God before the Father, our big brother Jesus, whose death and resurrection has made us brothers and sisters before his Father. He will come again. He will raise the dead. And we who are alive on that day will rejoice in the grace of God. And then Clanky and his family will make up for lost times. He'll be up there, you know, stumping the Apostle Paul on, on crossword puzzles and all the rest. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14, look at the text. It describes knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus, and he will present us to you. So then this passage is, is explaining our suffering, it's exposing our sin, and it's, it's extending us hope. With the imagery of, of reunion, there's this hope of, of being together again. Now let me remind you, because a lot of times people go south on this thing right here. Heaven is not heaven because some of your loved ones are there. Let me say that again. Heaven is not heaven because Clanky's there or Granny Jones is there or whatever. Heaven is heaven because the Father and His Son are there. And His Spirit fills heaven, reigning in glory. Heaven is heaven because God is there. You see, I say this because I'll, I'll hear religious and spiritual people talk about heaven, and they talk about, oh, heaven is this wonderful place and whatever, and conspicuously missing in their conversations and presentations of heaven is the mention of God. They have a godless heaven. M many would be happy to get to heaven and find out that Jesus wasn't even there. 
Most, dare I say, care, care, care less about the God who is in heaven. They just want heaven. And this reveals the empty spirituality of our world. God is just a means to some other end. Oh, yeah, I want to go to heaven. So, you know, tell me what I got to believe so that I can get there. Believing in the gospel is just kind of fire insurance for getting your ticket to heaven. And if you get up to heaven and it turns out not to be true, it's like, whatever, I'm in heaven, though. I like to call this gold digger religion. You wouldn't go out with that guy, but he's got a lot of money, so you're going out with him. You want his stuff. You don't want him. You're not in love with him. You just want his stuff. And so, too, spirituality is that way this day. People want heaven without Christ. They want prosperity without, without peace. They, they, they want a bunch of stuff, and they want, a bunch, they want to claim the promises. They want to get stuff. They want all of that, and God is just a means to that end. Heaven without Christ would be hell. It would be an empty home without family. You see, when I get home from a long day of work or an extended trip traveling overseas, I don't get to the house and start hugging the IKEA furniture. I don't roll around on my fake wood floors. I, 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 I don't hug the flat screen TV. No, I hug my wife and I hug my kids. Because home is home because that's where my family is. Likewise, heaven is heaven because that's where God is. And yes, the rest of his family is there, and so the reunion will be sweet. And that stirs us with hope and it stirs us with excitement as we think about meeting our creator face to face. A creator that we rebelled against. A creator that we have, we have no presumption that we would belong in his family, let alone to enjoy a place in heaven. And to see him face to face and to give thanks to him. And as we await that day to cry out to him, as Jesus taught us in Matthew 5, blessed are those who mourn. Jesus mourned, Jesus groaned, Jesus cried, Jesus was hurt. He's God. But remember, he's also man. So he has tasted death, he has grieved with us, and he comes to give us his every hope. The overwhelming emotions of mourning that we feel are just that, emotions. We mourn. It is proper, it is necessary for our souls to mourn. But also understand that mourning is momentary. It, it's going to pass. Not because we're going to forget, not because we're going to grow cold, not because, guys, you're just going to stuff it down there with every other problem in your life and ignore it, not, not, not because of any of that. It'll pass because it will pass. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, draw your eyes at verse 17. Listen to the words of Scripture. Momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Paul speaks of it as temporal. He speaks of it as momentary. He, he speaks of the affliction and he prefaces it by saying it's light. You say, no, 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 I, I saw Clanky in his bed. I saw him suffering. I saw him gritting his teeth. I, I saw that pain. That wasn't light at all. That was agony. Oh, but in light of eternity, it's light. It's momentary. Parotika, Paul says in the original language. Parotika, it's, it's just a little short period of time. It's a parenthesis. It's just a little part inside of a larger sentence. And from that vantage point, our human existence, you know, things can feel so long. You remember being in, in high school, and those four years felt really long, you know? And then those eight years in junior college felt really long, too, or whatever you did next, you know? Things just feel really long, and then you get a little older, and you go, wait a second, where did the time go? Uh, my 15-year-old is here in the front row, and I, I just, you know, it's like yesterday, he was a little baby. And you'd be at the grocery store, and you got your little kid in the car, and, you know, 
goofy head, and he, blah, 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 and you know, people would come up, oh, he's a cute little baby, and yeah, thanks, you know, and old people would come up to you when you got a little baby and say things like, they grow so fast, young man, you know, like, get out of here, creepy old person, whatever, you know, I haven't slept in 10 months, uh, this feels like five years, and he's only five months, and then you blink, and you're like, oh my gosh, those old prophets, Maybe I was entertaining angels and didn't know it with those old people in the grocery store. All sorts of fun things happen in the grocery store, incidentally. All of this to say that we all experience pain. We, we all know what it is to be trapped in time and to feel like things are going long. But then getting older, it has a way of teaching you, no, actually, you blink. And he went from five months to 15 like that. And you blink, and someone's gone, and you blink, and... Someone else has come, and you blink, and, and that's, that's the nature of this. And Paul puts it in that eternal perspective to say, it's momentary. What is to come will be forever. We sang Amazing Grace. You know, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. 10,000 years? Yeah, yeah, 10,000 years. Notice that verse 18 marks the end of the chapter, 2 Corinthians. Notice that chapter 5, verse 1 begins with the conjunction for, meaning that his thought is still going. And when you see a for, you want to say, what's the for there for? Because he's continuing his thought. Look at the verse. Do you see the context of the momentary? The passage is dealing with life and death. It likens the human body to a temporary tent. Now look at the fifth chapter and begin on the heels of these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we know that this earthly tent which is our house is torn down, and we have a building from God, a house that is not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, or everlasting in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being buried, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The human body is just a tent, the Apostle Paul says. Now, we know historically that Paul was actually a tent maker by trade. In fact, he supported his ministry this way. Let me put a, a, a replica of an ancient tent that would have been like one that Paul built. Paul, Paul paid for his ministry by making tents. He wasn't a bootlegger preacher like you see on religious broadcasting, selling snake oil and what have you. No, Paul worked hard for his resources. He worked hard. He served to the death for the cause of Christ literally rescuing people from hell. And using the imagery of his trade, Paul depicts the temporary status of our present bodily condition through the imagery of a tent. Tents were very common in the culture, and so it's one that the, you know, the people he's writing to would understand. Soldiers, herdsmen, nomadic tradesmen, traveling families. Uh, you know, Think of like, I don't know, the ancient national lampoons, vacation or whatever. They, they used tents. Tents were very common in their day. I guess tents are common in our day now, too, in Los Angeles, right? Uh, they're all around the city for different reasons. And we pray for those reasons. But in Corinth, where Paul was writing, tents were used in a pan-Hellenistic Ithmian games. When tourists came to town to watch the great games in the city of Corinth, it would have swelled with tents, and you'd see tents come, and you'd see tents go. We dig up ancient pyramids and archaeological finds, but rarely tents. Why? Because tents wither and tents fade. You can dig up a structure, but not a tent. They fade. It's a powerful image then for Paul. Something that fades, something that they saw, something that goes up for a little bit, and then it's gone. 
Let me draw your attention to the fourth verse because Paul, Paul speaks of mortality being swallowed up by life. Paul's confident, present tense in verse 1, we have a building from God, is not intended to indicate the immediacy of the new physical state upon death, but its certainty. It's certainty, which is very clear in verses 6 through 8. The wording here in verse 4 is powerful. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul used the language of the victory of the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have from the one who has conquered the grave. And he personifies sin. So sin isn't like this abstract thing, but, but sin is, is like a person that's like running around. And then Paul taunts that person. Would you turn now from 2 Corinthians back into 1 Corinthians? And I want to show you Paul taunting death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Personified sin, Paul's going to speak to it. Verse 51, 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for dead. We will not all die, but we will be changed. In the moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable will put on imperishable, and this mortal will put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Watch Paul go gangster on death here. Verse 55. Oh, death. Hey, death. Hey, death. Death, where's your victory? Oh, oh, death. Where, where is your sting? Hey, death, let me tell you something. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Isn't that powerful? Paul's describing the mysterious return of the resurrected Jesus for his church. He, he boldly grabs death by the neck, and he says, You don't win the game. You have lost. It's like a dedicated fan watching his team destroy an, op uh, an opponent on a big day. The Apostle Paul chants, at the expectation of Christ swallowing up the enemy of death. And notice that Paul's comfort is not just in the future event, but it is rooted in the present hour as he understands that victory to be experienced today. That victory is ours for the taking when we come in repentance of faith. And so that victory then, moving through the points that we have from Paul, exalts the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you have it in front of you. Look at verse 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word that was preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first of importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. There's not time to get into this, but here the Apostle Paul is actually quoting from a, uh, a document that dates very early. So with regard to the, the, the skeptics who like to say things like, Da Vinci Code, this Jesus stuff was made up, you know, so on and so forth. This, this is within a generation of the time of Christ. He's talking to people who are eyewitnesses of these things. The reality of this event. You guys saw this event. You guys know this event. You, you've experienced this event. You were there when he, he died at the cross of Calvary in Golgotha. Here, I'll show you a picture of Golgotha for those of you who've been able to travel with me to Jerusalem and do the tourism stuff. Here's the site of Golgotha, the place of the skull. It literally looks like a skull at the location. And you stand there with this sobering, dark scene, and you think about how he suffered for us, how he moaned and he groaned, and he took, he took the decaying creation upon himself, decaying flesh. 
And he was buried, Paul says. He was buried, verse 4. He was buried, and on the third day he is risen. If you have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem and you visit uh, one of the key locations where he was buried, they have a little monument there, and on on the door of the tomb, there's a plaque that says, he's not here, for he is risen. It's a beautiful sight. Inside of the Bible, we have the hope not only of the return of Christ, but we also have the hope of the redemption of all creation and resurrection. We have the scene at the end of the Bible of the, of the heavenly Jerusalem that comes to earth, to Jerusalem, and merges, and creation itself is restored. Clanky is in the holy city. Clanky is in the new Jerusalem today. He's in the new Jerusalem. We're awaiting for Christ to come. We're awaiting for the new Jerusalem to come. If you have the opportunity to jump on one of our Jerusalem trips, it, it's about 18 hours to get to Jerusalem. In fact, El Alal has straight flights, and they're about 15 hours to get there. It's, 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 quite, it's quite the trek. And to think that for Clanky to be absent from the bodies to be present with the Lord, there was no trek. There was no, no tickets, no, no transfers, no... No, no, he's there. He's there. And we long for there to be here. This leads me to the final point there on point two on the outline. We are expecting the return of Jesus as we groan, as we mourn. Jesus died for sin and he's coming back. In his return, he will judge the dead. He will raise the dead. Are we ready for that day? Are we ready for the day when he will come? Are you ready for the day? Are you ready for Christ to come? If he comes or if you die, you will face him. If your sins have not been paid for by Christ, you will have to pay for them yourself. It, 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 it's for you. It, it, it's, it's for you to have him pay for you. If you were at the restaurant and you forgot your wallet or whatever and, and uh, you couldn't pay for it and someone came along and said, hey, I want to pay for you, it, it's for you. You say, how dare you try to pay for my food? That would be weird. How dare you try to cram your religion down my throat? No, I'm trying to pay for you. I'm not trying to cram religion down your throat. I'm actually trying to get religion out of your throat. I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to unclog your throat so that, so that you can open your mouth and you can cry out to him and worship him and know him and, and, and seek him and live for him. To give up the things of this earth and to, to run to him. The things of this earth will, will keep you from this. The rapper Nas has this song with this refrain on the chorus, if heaven was a mile away, would I pack up my bags and leave this world behind? And it's a reflection on how, like, if heaven were just a mile away, would I be like, mm, let me eat lunch first. You know, mm, I want to go, mm, there's this new restaurant. Mm, let me, uh, you know, I got a couple of things I want to do first. Let me get these things done and then I'll go to heaven. Like, what, what are you living for? What's more important than knowing your creator and being with him? I invite you to cry out to him. At the least, I invite you to talk to me or talk to someone from this church. Talk to Pastor Tony. Talk to someone. Bring, bring your questions, your, your doubts, and the rest. You know, when someone dies, we have to get used to using the past tense. Uh, thinking about Clanky, you know, say, uh, Clanky had kids and grandkids, or Clanky helped. It's really weird to get used to that past tense. But thankfully, we read inside of Scripture lips of Jesus in John eleven twenty five. 25, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. We don't have to use past tense with regard to Clanky. He's alive because he worships a Lord who is alive. So then what do we do in the interim time? What do we do in the in-between times? What do we do 
while we're waiting for Jesus to come, for New Jerusalem and all that good stuff, what do we do? This has been called the land of the living. But we have a job to teach the world that the opposite is true. This is not the land of the living. This is the land of the dying. We are all just passing by. We are all just passing by. This is a big bus stop. It's a big bus stop. It's a, it's, 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 it's a big intermission. My family and I went to see Hamilton last week, and you get that intermission, right? And you know, oh, we're waiting, and then the lights flicker, and oh, let's find our seats, and, you know, and, and this thing's about to start again. This is just an intermission. We're waiting for the lights to flick. We, we are waiting for Christ to come. For this we say, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Notice what he begins with there in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the interim, about what's going on. Further, verse 13, I, I don't want you to grieve like the rest. You're going to grieve, you're going to be sad, but we have hope. We have assurance. This isn't pie in the sky, check your brains at the door, fire insurance, I'm going to say the Jesus prayer because if it turns out to be true. No, no, no. We, we are talking about reality here. We're talking about two plus two is four. We're talking about real history, like Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. Like, this stuff happened, and this will happen. And so we, we grieve, but not the way the world does, because we have this assurance. Even further, I, I'm, I'm so thankful that Clanky's not in pain anymore. Watching, watching him suffer, watching that tent fading. What did we read in Romans, remember, at the beginning of service? The present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory. He's tasting that glory. So we don't lose hope, for the outer man has decayed, but the inner has life and the hope of resurrection. We do not lose heart because his momentary suffering is over, and his earthly tent has been torn down for a building from God that was made with hands, but now hands eternal in the heavens. Clanky was once groaned in pain, but now he's clothed with a dwelling from heaven where death and disease are no more, and where the praises of the saints have swallowed up the grave and are joined with the angels chanting the victory of the risen Son. Death, you have no victory. Jesus the Savior has conquered the grave. The new heavens and the new earth, the best is yet to come. And so as we come now and we take this cup, that's exactly what we're doing. The Apostle Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians that when we take this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This little bread right here reminds us that the eternal Son, one with the Father and the Spirit, became a man, took on a body. He took on an earthly tent, a Coleman, right? He took on a tent, flesh, full body, full humanity. And why did he do that? Again, this wasn't some, look at what I can do. He did this to pay the debt that we owed. We owed a debt that we could not pay. And he did this for us. He took on a body for us so that Clanky's body that now is awaiting a burial and family will be working on plans and we'll have a big old service and do whatever the family wants. But that, that body, wherever it's laid, it's just a temporary spot. It will rise up. 
And how do we know this? Because the first fruits, the one who took on this body, that's exactly what he did. And he said, if, if you can bank on that, if I can raise this up, so too will you. And so we take this to remember what he has done, and we take this to remember what he will do. Let's see. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and he and they shall be my people. And he, God himself, will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and no longer will there be any death. No longer will there be any mourning. No longer, no longer crying, no longer pain, for these things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write out the words that are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts the spring of water without cost. And he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As we drink this cup, we think of the day that is to come when we will no longer thirst. This, this is the down payment. This is the down payment that says, I'm handling this. I'm paying for this. I got this. He didn't co-sign with you either. He's handling the payments. He's in control of this. He knows what it is to weep. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to die. And he did all of this. And this cup reminds us of that assurance that we have. Let's drink, brothers and sisters. I'm thankful to be a part of the church that places communion at the center of its worship. I'm thankful to be a part of a church that places the preaching of his word and the gospel in the center of his worship. I'm thankful to be a part of a church where when someone dies and someone suffers, we can just gather and we can, we can process it together. And what are we processing it by? By the scripture. I'm thankful that our congregation longs to hear that, that our congregation expects that. You came here today to hear the word. You came here today to be pointed to him. And as we're mourning, we'll keep pointing each other back to him, that, that, that God is good, that God has handled this, that God will be with us, that, that God will wipe our tears, and that he's sovereign over it all. Let us pray, and let us uh, have a couple of, of songs before we close the service. As we sing to the Lord, you know, to sing to someone is, a, is an honor. When you sing to someone, when you, when you offer praise to them, that is to, to lift them up. And so... That's what we long to do when we, when we pray, when we sing. We're directing our focus on the Lord and we're saying, saying, Lord, you are worthy to be praised. Lord, receive these songs of worship. And we also pray that through the song and through the prayer that he would be washing us and sanctifying us. So would you bow your heads and hearts and let's seek the Lord for his hand to be upon us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, that while we were yet sinners, you would die for us. Lord, forgive us if that message has ever grown cold to us. If, if the gospel has become like ABCs or 123s, and our ears are longing to hear something other than that, Lord, forgive us. Correct us. This is a message that we should never grow tired from, a message that we are never too advanced to hear. It is the one that we always need to hear daily especially at the start of our week as we have gathered. You are good. You are the creator. You love the creation. You gave life to it. We rebelled against you, and we deserve death and punishment, but you were so good and so merciful. Father, to send your son, 
to take death and punishment upon himself in order to give us life. To send your spirit to open our eyes to see what we couldn't see on our own. To regenerate our hearts. And now, Lord, may your spirit stir us in song so that as we sing, we wouldn't be merely reading words off of a wall like some sort of spiritual karaoke. But Lord, deep within our hearts, these words would ring true. And you would minister to us as we are in a season of, of mourning as a congregation. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the life of Clarence and for his family. And Lord, we just pray a blessing over his family, especially as they are mourning this morning in the days and in the weeks to come. Lord, we, we pray a blessing over them. And Lord, bless us now as we sing unto you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.